Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. We've been talking about this album for a while, talking about discussing this as one of our album episodes for a year or two. Yeah, I think we've been holding off on it because it's probably one of the last big ones that we, in our Venn diagram of, of, of music listenership, um, what, what, what kind of sentence am I making here? It's, one, <laughs> it's probably the last of the large albums that you and I both like. Um, there are other albums that are not as important and, and not as interesting and that we like, but this is probably the last of the, of the, the, the important albums that we both have in common that we like. I don't know. We could do a Beatles album. We could do... We can find others if we really search. Anyway. Sure, sure. London Calling is, for me, an apex. It's the, it's the changing of an era. It's a time when a band got to their best and they weren't going to get there again. You can see it in the arc of the clash as they got up to London Calling and then Sandinista, I'd say, is a plateau. I think Sandinista is a triple album that's hiding an excellent double album. Or a single and, album. <laughs> well, nah, there's enough for a double album. But okay. anyway, and then it's like combat rock is okay, but it's not great. And then so London Calling is like this, you know, this perfect moment, this confluence of circumstances that made the clash as legendary as they are. Now, when I look at something like this, I like to look at the context of the times. Now, think about The Clash's first couple of albums that arguably they had punk songs on them. My thesis is that they were a rock band performing in the punk idiom until London Calling. And That's absolutely true. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. yeah. And the, the times in the UK... It, it's really, because there's a lot of political songs on this record, uh, well, on all of the Clash's albums. But I was just looking through 1979 in the United Kingdom on Wikipedia. And I'm just going to throw out a few events that occurred. Um, here we go. We have a strike. Lorry drivers on strike in January. Tens of thousands of public workers strike in the beginning of what becomes known as the winter of discontent. Things were bad in the UK. In May, Margaret Thatcher became the first female prime minister. If you go ahead a few months later, they talk about budget cuts and, uh, you know, particularly benefits, things like that. In August, Lord Mountbatten of Burma and two 15-year-olds, his nephew and a boat boy, were assassinated by a provisional IRA bomb. And 18 British soldiers were killed in Northern Ireland the same day by IRA bombs. So this was an England in conflict, both... Political and economic. Well, when the band got together, it was suggested, um, well, well, a number of things was suggested to them. One of them, the reason they took their name, The Clash, was because that was a word that was in the newspaper a lot. And another thing is that their manager, Bernard Rhodes, Bernie Rhodes, told them, just write about things in the newspaper, and that'll be, and we'll make that punk. We'll make punk political. So that's what they did, and they wrote about things that were in the newspaper. So that's that's it's as simple as that, really. Yeah. 
Um, they were a political band. But, I mean, they were, but they were interested in it, too. It's not like they just looked at the newspaper and said, let's write a song about, you know, racism yeah. in Brixton. Let's let's do something. Let's really write some There's songs. There's an interesting documentary, I believe it's on Amazon Prime Video, about Joe Strummer. And you see that he was really walking the walk. He lived in a squat. You could tell by his teeth that he didn't have, you know, good money to pay for dentists. He he was a political person. Maybe not all the band members were, but he was the leader of the band. Strikingly, in this Wikipedia page, and I know anyone can put anything on Wikipedia, the only two musicians mentioned are Elton John, who did a concert in Russia, and The Clash's London Calling being released in December. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, it, it, <laughs> one thing to point out is that for the United States, this is a 1980 album because it wasn't released in the U.S. until 1980. So it comes in Robert Christgau's 1980 Paz and Jop Survey where he discussed with a number of critics, you know, what are your favorite albums? And London Calling was number one. Talking Heads Remain in Light, number two. If I look through some of the other ones, John Hassel, Brian Eno, Fourth World, Volume One, Possible Music, number six. Not the most popular album, but quite important. Number 11 was Gang of Four Entertainment. Number 12, Public Image Limited, second edition. There was a thing going on in music around there. There was a... There was a flavor of music. If I go to Rolling Stone, they have a, an article, the 80 greatest albums of 1980. And again, I find that interesting because all of these people are living in the same musical atmosphere, listening to the music that's going on. And they're writing in, say, 78 and 79, and they're releasing in 80. So this is all the same time. You get things like Bob Dylan Saved, obviously, that's sui generis. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark organization, arguably their best record, the one that made them popular because it has Enola Gay. Genesis, Duke. I guess this was the one that made Genesis really popular, too. Well, they had a lot of radio hits on there. Isn't that the one with Misunderstanding? I think so. Oh, and Turn It On Again. Peter Gabriel's third record, uh, the one with Games Without Frontiers and Biko, immensely popular. Adam and the Ants, remember that? Yes, Kings of the Wild Frontier. That was hip. That had a beat. You could dance to that. Yeah, and well, you know where that beat came from? Bernie Rhodes. Bernie I Rhodes. I didn't know that. Bernie Rhodes suggested to Malcolm McLaren that put a band together that does this. Malcolm McLaren did. He made Adam in the end. I did not know that. Okay, yeah, so, so it's all Bernie Rhodes is running the show over yeah. there, I think. Okay, so we move up number 61, Bauhaus in the Flat Field. I don't know if you remember that album, but man, that yeah. was powerful. Sure, sure. That was really something. The Psychedelic Furs first album came out then. The Cure's 17 Seconds, which I would say is The Cure's first real album because Boys Don't Cry was a different type of music. This was when they really got into that sort of rhythm Joan Jett, Bad Reputation, great record. You know, it's funny. Um, there is a lot of, I, I think you've proven your point here. There's a lot of interesting. Oh, I got okay, more to come, but, but yeah. I, I want to get to the Rolling Stone thing. The, um, the review for London Calling in Rolling Stone didn't come out until April. And I, I, you sent it to, the link to me this morning and I read it and I forgot. I had read it in the past. And it really seems like they didn't care about it. I mean, it seems like the guy did a couple of lines of Coke, listened to the record, <laughs> wrote down a couple of lines from some of the songs and, and analyzed it like that. And it really is a very brisk and kind of... Uh, Rolling Stone did not review it very well, I don't think. And um, I think they missed out on it. I don't know if they thought that... Well, I don't know. It, uh, they didn't review it for their March issue. 
which is when they would have been writing in January, right? So That's what I would expect because the, the lead time for something like Rolling Stone, it was more like a newspaper than a magazine. They would certainly be able to fill in the reviews. You know, the features took more time, but they'd be able to fill in the reviews a week before going to press, right? Right, and you would think that an album that was as important or at least seemed like it was as, as important as London Calling would have been, you know, one of the first things they did. They certainly jumped on John Lennon albums fast enough. I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I mean, there are some albums they jumped on and some they didn't. And this was one they did not jump on. Okay, more context. Susie and the Banshees, Kaleidoscope. That's when I saw Susie and the Banshees live. Great band to see live. Here's here's a great one that I forgot about this. Grace Jones's Warm Leatherette. Oh, terrific record. Great album that cover. That is just amazing. A great album cover, great music. Great band because she's working with Sly and Robbie, who were you know the dub, the dub twins or whatever. Yeah. The Rolling Stones actually released a record in 1980. Which one? Emotional Rescue. Oh, that's that's a pretty good record. <laughs> but I don't even remember that coming out in 1980 because. Well, it was. I, I'm I'm still thinking that Some Girls was the Stones at the time. Emotional Rescue was a single. That was a pretty. That was a big single. I didn't like it because it had sort of. I don't know. It's you know, it's Mick Jagger trying to be a soul R and B artist, which I didn't you know cut it out. Um, but there's yeah. some other good stuff on that record. So yeah. Okay, so we have we have Public Image Limited Second Edition, and I really liked Pill for a sure. while. Sure, I really yeah. did. I thought that was a a bold new beat, as yeah. it were. Keith Levine, Keith Levine. He was one of the original members of the Clash. That's right. See, they're all yeah. linking together it's in this movement. The these rock thing. family trees. So U two's yeah. boy. Huge album. And and as we're moving up, number 20 is John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Double Fantasy. Of course, John Lennon would be dead by the end of the year. I'm going to skip things like Steely Dan and Judas Priest, because I'm really focusing on the things that were around the clash, that kind of thing. Bob Marley and the Whalers Uprising, the last album before he died in 1981. Joy Division's second and last album, Closer. Bruce Springsteen's The River, The Pretenders, ACDC Back in Black, I couldn't care less, but you always mention that every chance you get. Yes. And then, of course, Talking Heads Remain in Light and The Clash London Calling. So the atmosphere at the time was that pivotal period. It wasn't yet post-punk. It was the beginning of post-punk and the beginning of New Wave, OMD, Adam and the Ants. Yes. And, and it was like flowing seamlessly from one to another, the, the punk era that had, that had finished. Don't forget that Sid Vicious died that year as well. I was going to say that... Uh you know, if you know any movies from around then, mostly there were those John... What was it? Who's the guy that did all those teenage movies? Sixteen Candles and all that stuff. John Hughes. All the kids in the movies had Clash posters, OMD posters in their rooms, in the movies. Uh, maybe not OMD, but you know what I mean. They had, they had those new wave uh, artists posters in their bedrooms and, you know, as incidental art in the, in the movies. So it was... It, so I just looked up the most popular movies in 1980. The Empire Strikes Back, 9 to 5, Stir Crazy, Airplane, Any Which Way You Can, Private Benjamin, Coal Miner's Daughter, Smokey and the Bandit 2, The Blue Lagoon, and The Blues Brothers. So I guess the movies I'm talking about came out later because none of, so, those yeah. movies, none of those films are at all hip. <laughs> A notable event in June of 1980 was Richard Pryor sets himself on fire while freebracing cocaine and drinking 151 proof rum. That was a big deal. He ran down his street in Northridge, California until subdued by the police. Right. 
<laughs> like he was going, right, well, going out of his mind. He was, his face was yeah. on fire. All right, so let's talk about the music. Well, first of all, let's talk about the cover because I didn't know. I did not know Elvis Presley's first album back then, right? So that's where the the lettering comes from, the yeah. London Calling. But the photo is really interesting. This is a photo of. Paul Simonon slamming his bass on the stage at the Palladium just a couple months before, in, I think in September. And the photographer knew that something was going to happen and took a picture. And he apparently was protesting because the people in the Palladium wouldn't let the people stand up and dance. Or something like that. Now, I went to the Palladium very often back in that period, and I don't recall having to stay in my seat. Yeah, I, I, I well, whatever. This is the story. Anyway, so this is a 65-minute album, which was almost a 60-minute album, because there's that one hidden track that was grafted on at the end. And, and it's kind of interesting, because as we've discussed albums in the past, I've tried to look at each side as a suite, that the, the songs on a side go together. And Train in Vain does not fit on the last side. Train in Vain doesn't fit anywhere on that record. And I don't even know why it's there. And I, Alana, I'm going on record as I do not like that song. I do like that song. And putting it last seems like it's a bonus track almost. Because it doesn't fit with the right, with the tone. Especially because Revolution Rock is, you know, this reggae song that comes right before it. And it's a good ending, right? Revolution Rock, that's how you end it. And then you no get this... combo, bongo jams, a speciality, right? It should yeah, end you, right then there. you get this, then you get this, like, sad breakup song in a way. Which, you know, it, it doesn't even fit lyrically. I think it's a great song. And... You know, I was thinking uh, the other day, I was in the kitchen, I was listening to some Clash, and I was thinking, man, these guys could write really melodic songs about just terrible things, like the song Somebody Got Murdered on Sandinista. Yeah. It's like, change the lyrics to that, and this is like a teenage anthem, and it's like Somebody Got Murdered. I, I have a theory. My theory is that Mick Jones does not write good lyrics. In fact, he kept up this bad lyric writing until he got into Big Audio Dynamite, where... Maybe somebody told him to, you know, not be so angular, not be so literal, not try to fit words into melodies where they where the syllable where there aren't enough syllables or there are too many syllables. He just he wasn't really good at putting songs together, and I think some of the songs that he wrote, and I'm I'm almost positive he is completely responsible for Train in Vain, Stand by Me. It's just a dumb song, and he wrote a lot of dumb love songs, in my opinion. If you want to hear some dumb. Mick Jones love songs. Listen to the Ellen Foley album, Spirit of St. Louis, which was recorded at the same time as Sandinista, but shortly after London Calling. And um, it's essentially Mick Jones producing an album for his girlfriend. Strummer Jones get credit for the songs, but I think he wrote most of them. And they're terrible. They're awful songs. <laughs> so I mean, the melodies are great. Don't get me wrong. The chords, the way they're arranged, they're really interesting. Yeah fascinating yeah. as a matter of fact but the words are just dumb yeah, yeah immature juvenile yeah well some of them it depends the political ones i think are a lot better and, and i kind of wonder yes. well those are i think i i think joe yeah wrote it, it's hard to know because they're all just credited as strummer and jones so you don't know which ones he wrote except for the guns of brixton which is written by paul simonon right which right. i mean he's the bass player and that's like a bass-heavy right. song, so it's the kind of thing. That's well, all it is. It makes sense. It's all it's him playing a reggae riff. Yeah. That's it. So 
again, the styles that you get in here, it's like you look at the first Clash album and there are a couple of reggae tunes, but it's pretty punk. And this one, you you open up with London Calling, which I would say is like a rock anthem in some ways. And then you go to Brand New Cadillac, this sort of rockabilly song by Vince Taylor. It's It's kind of like, this is who we are. We're going to play the rock and we can play this. And then there's reggae songs and then there's sort of jazzy songs and there's songs with horns. And it's it's just an extraordinary expansion of their musical universe. By the time I remember, I, bought, I remember very clearly buying this and bringing it home and listening to it, bringing it to my dorm and listening to it. And by the time the third song on the first side was over, I said, if the rest of this album sucks, this was worth it. Just these three songs. These are three phenomenal songs right in a row. Bam, bam, bam. And, of course... Uh, third song on the first side is Jimmy Jazz. Okay, Jimmy Jazz. Um, yep. As soon as I got through those three, I definitely remember putting that bookmark down saying, this is a great record. And I didn't... I wasn't that familiar with The Clash beforehand. I'd heard a couple of things from the first... The singles, something from their early single stuff, which sounded really garage rocky. But this was really... This seemed like they knew what they were doing. Right. It was the it was their defining album. Yeah. And, yeah. and 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 it was obvious right from the start. Yeah. I I had all their albums by the time this came out and I even had both the US and UK versions of the first album which had different tracks. I would have had a couple of EPs, Black Market Clash, things like that. So I was really familiar with them. What I find interesting, having re-listened to this record a couple of times over the weekend, is the first side is great. The second side is great. The second side is really political. The first side is a lot of stuff. The third side is this light sort of, you know, we're going to take a break here. And then the fourth side comes back. Maybe not the greatest songs, Four Horsemen uh, is not the best, but Revolution Rock, Lovers Rock, I'm Not Down, great songs. So it's like we get... Two sides, then, okay, here's the third side. Go smoke a split for you listening to this one. And then you get a fourth side. And it, it, it's a suite. It's a four-movement symphony. It's, I think it's easier to listen to than, and we've compared this album a lot to Exile on Main Street. I think it's easier to listen to all the way through than Exile on Main Street. Not that yeah. Exile on Main Street is difficult to listen to, but there's a lot of stuff in Exile on Main Street. Yeah. Um, this just smoothly kind of goes... Along, it, you're right. By the by, that lull in that third side, there's kind of like, well, what can they possibly do now? And they, they kind of get a little lost there, but they do find their footing again on side four. Yeah, uh, arguably there are a couple of songs that are, I'd say, Bs instead of As or A pluses, but it's a remarkably consistent record. Yeah. It really is. Sounds really um, good. Uh, now, I remember when it came out, one of the big things is it was a double album for the price of a single album, which they would take even further with Sandinista, a triple album for the price of a single album. Again, Sandinista is a great double album hiding in there. In fact, someone should make a playlist of the good songs in Sandinista. I have, I, I think I've mentioned this before, if I have the CBS promotional disc that they put out. It's one record right? with all the songs that CBS thought would make one record and i think i've posted it on apple yeah. music you know i yeah. made the playlist but yeah um uh, uh, yeah you're right they should have i don't know why they went so excessive cbs went along with it too cbs well, initially told them to London do, Calling whatever was so you want to do we'll, yeah they had a blank check essentially yeah it's amazing really when you think about it i mean other than like people like bruce springsteen who else would 
be allowed to do whatever you want and we will promote it. And who else would do a triple album? I'm trying to think the concert for Bangladesh was a triple album. Woodstock was four. Chicago Carnegie Hall was four. But yeah, triple but, albums but were all there. Of those yes sing- Songs was a triple but album. The, but nobody went into the studio yeah. to say, let's just record everything and put it out. Or, yeah, I mean, who knows what else wasn't recorded for Sandinista. Yeah. Um, I don't think any of the songs that were left over from London Calling made it onto Sandinista. It's a totally different sounding record. Yeah, hard to know. We'd, we'd have to look into that to, to try and figure it out. But what I take away from this is that it's a remarkably, I hate to say it, it's a young album. It, 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 it feels alive. And part of this yeah. is that rock music has not changed since 1980. It really hasn't. That's, actually, that's a good point. I mean, we're always, I'm always looking for that thing that, 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 that lasts forever. And that's one that does. This is one that does. London Calling for sure sounds young. I never thought about it that way, but you know, maybe it's just because I bought it when I was 19 or something. But or... rock music has not changed much, and we've talked about this in the past, that it hit a spot there, and okay, there's heavy metal, and there's punkier punk, and there's uh, but rock, sort of mainstream rock music has not changed a lot. Yeah. Well, and it's it, rock is dead, of course, as we know. Rock is dead, that's, and that's why that's why 70% of music on the streaming services is catalog music. That's more than 18 months. We did an episode talking about this, and I think, I don't know if the percentage has gone up since our episode last year. Well, it should have. Well, it probably has. It just kind of makes sense. Because this stuff, you can't do much better than Born to Run, than London Calling, than Exile on Main Street. You're you're stuck in a genre with such landmarks that you cannot supersede. And the only way you could is if you have some artist who has the charisma to attract people and the musical talent. And in rock, I, I guess you had the grunge stuff for a while, but that's not quite the same. It didn't have the same universal impact. No, none of it does. And and, and the Clash just worked out good. Um, I uh, All of that music worked out good, actually. There's so much music. We uh, Did we do a, a list of 1980 or was it 1981? We did 1981. And it was, as you said earlier, that era was, was, was very... Uh, uh, it was a a, a a thousand flowers bloom. Is that the expression? Yeah. Um, it just went kaplooey, and there's just so much good stuff, and you can either copy that stuff or, you know, try to uh, incorporate it into some new sound, but I don't th- we're not hearing it. I'm no. not hearing it. I've, I'm constantly looking for good rock music to listen to, and I keep having to have to go back. Yeah. One other interesting release around the same time, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Absolutely. Um, another double album. Um, uh, yep. Another double album I, that I uh, I spent my lunch money on in college. Uh, I brought it home. I listened to. I brought it back to the dorm. I played the first song. I said, "Wow, this is great!" And then I kind of yeah. got into it, and I was like, "Oh, I guess I'm going to have to listen to this." <laughs> so I mean, that's that's how I felt about it. And, London Calling said, just keep listening. Just just yeah. keep listening. But Pink Floyd, you had to listen to it. And so it became a bit of more of a burden. But I still liked it. I still yeah. liked it quite and, a bit. And Pink Floyd was a, was a, a narrative arc. The, the wall yeah. was a narrative arc. And so right. you wouldn't just put on side three because you wanted to hear those songs. It feels wrong to play them out of order. It's not like four suites on four sides. But the timing of that is interesting, that while we were seeing this 
you know, flourishing of rock, we were seeing this end of rock in the sense that this was a performance rather than a record. It was also the beginning of the end of Pink Floyd. It was like the old dinosaurs were dying. Okay, not all of them, but Yes had gone into their Don't Save the Whale stuff. And, uh, you know, Genesis had broken into pop and and fizzy music and... Maybe, yes, older bands, yes, but there were still, there were, well, in this country, there were bands like Journey that were still doing this big... Um, yeah, Boston. Top-heavy top yeah. sort, yeah. Um, meatloaf. And... The late Meatloaf. Yeah, the, that, that kind of stuff was still popular. Yeah. Uh, but but th this was really the beginning of that new wave period, in, yeah. uh, which mostly came from the UK. Uh, the the American versions of New Wave. I mean, you've got Talking Heads, you've got Iggy Pop, etc., but it didn't have the same movement feel in the U.S. But in the U.K., 1979, 1980, that was the moment when... And, and you kind of wonder why. Why did all this music take off? A lot of it was the politics. I've probably said several times that I, I've seen these photos and these videos of Manchester around this period, and it looks like it was just Berlin after World War II. Uh, people were mad. People, young people were mad. They would, they couldn't get jobs. They couldn't make any money. It was just a, it was a bad scene. And the only thing they could do was play guitars really loud. And that's what they did. <laughs> so I guess bad economic times are good for music because kids have free time and they can play music. Awesome. Bring on the next recession. This was episode number 229 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.